Welcome to episode 393 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, Michael Harris. We talk with Michael about beluga whales, animal cognition and emotion, animal health and welfare, the federal duck stamp contest, mountain lions, hunting, freedom of expression, and a few other very intriguing areas of discourse. A grand conversation with Michael Harris this week on the program. We have an EW essay titled Prevail and a discussion between Michael Parkinson back in 1974 with Orson Welles on Ernest Hemingway and a poem called Memory. All of this, of course, will be infused imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 393 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
prevail. As I write this, I am unsure of who will be our president in the United States or whether the Senate will be taken out of the control of a cynical set of scoundrels. I would love to see and feel what it is to have justice prevail, fellow human beings coming together to reinvigorate the grand experiment of democracy that has been handed from one country to another through generations of human civilization. It has flourished and then disappeared in many places and has resurfaced and taken root again. I suppose because there is some aspect of humankind that believes ethical, informed, thoughtful, intelligent collaboration and coexistence is the way to be. Though, too, I think anyone who has been paying honest attention can see we have certain self-destructive tendencies. Those of a type we will allow to take root and blacken our souls, shrink our hearts, cloud and distract our minds. Where are we now? I sit here in my plush chair, picked up at a yard sale, second hand, but nonetheless beautiful and comfortable. The window in front of me reflects bright white light as a late October snow squall covers the ground with a sort of temporary purity. As it falls, the mountains behind are lost in the fog, and within a concentration of activity, physical and real, in the foreground. This movement standing still, to me, is profound. Every time I go back home, brush leaves off of the stone. From the grave I see up the hill, same old tree stand there still. And it's a little bit sweet, it's a little bit bitter. Spirits visit me I wake up and I'm all alone Stuck inside my skin and bone It's a little bit sweet It's a little bit bitter Bitter sweet That's the way
Is that you? It is. How are you? Oh, I'm great. It's good to have you once again on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, uh, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, an important organization based in Connecticut. And uh, your office is in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and you're, you've been busy since the last time we spoke. Yeah, I've been busy. Staying at home has been productive, I guess. For us, but also having an administration bent on trashing the environment and wildlife has um, given us uh, uh, given us lots of uh, opportunities to um, to fight back. Yeah, yeah, you're fighting against uh, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Will, Wilbur Ross, as well as uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. All kinds of stuff that Friends of Animals is getting uh, involved in. I, I know you wanted to speak a bit about what's going on in, in Connecticut, uh, the Mystic Aquarium with the beluga whales. Uh, maybe we could start there, or you can really you could uh, go wherever you like, sir. It's your segment, Michael. Okay. Yeah, I don't think we've talked about the beluga whales before. I know last time we spoke was. Uh, early in the summer and i don't think this was on our radar yet um no it was in yeah june we spoke and you mentioned something but i don't think you you went to the extent you're you're uh you've gone since yeah you know what this is an interesting case because uh in some ways it shows you how much progress that we're making on you know the well-being of animals and keeping them out of captivity but then it shows you how we're not quite turning the corner yet either and so you know over the last um, you know decade uh, attention has been brought uh, in 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 the media and in movies and elsewhere on um, you know just how hard life can be for an animal like a whale in captivity you know, we saw the movie Blackfish, and we've seen uh, SeaWorld and other uh, of those type of entertainment type of aquariums sort of say we're not going to, you know, you know, put Chris, you know, whales and dolphins into captivity anymore or use them for show purposes, and um, and so you know the 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 government of Canada last year uh, enacted a nationwide ban on using dolphins and whales 
in the entertainment industry or allowing them to be brought into captivity. So that was like a really high watermark for, um, you know, our awareness about, you know, these animals, their intelligence, their self-autonomy, and the real stress that captivity brings to them. And so that was, uh, everyone was celebrating this. And, um, and then, of course, the question becomes, well, what about the animals that are in captivity there now? And what will happen to their lives? And uh, in fact, there's a Marine World Canada up near Toronto has one of the largest captive beluga populations. They had uh, at one point almost 50. I believe it's around 23 belugas remain in captivity there. And um, they're not allowed to exhibit them any longer. So the whales are just are just sort of living their lives behind the scene, literally, you know, in some some tanks behind uh, what used to be the, the show stadium. And um, Marine World is uh, looking to sell them off. And so this is where, you know, we go, well, you know, it's good we got a nationwide ban in Canada, but, you know, what about these whales? And um, a few of them are being transferred or the intent is to transfer them to this aquarium in Connecticut known as Mystic Aquarium. And um, we are trying to stop that. And it's not because we think that, you know, Mystic is worse place than than where they are at in Canada at, at Marine World. It's because we really want to keep the pressure uh, up on all these aquariums to start thinking about um, sanctuaries for these animals. So we already have uh, sanctuaries for other previously captive animals. There's a number of sanctuaries in the United States that host primates that used to be in captivity. It's now illegal to keep primates, uh, particularly chimpanzees, in captivity in the United States, whether it's entertainment or laboratories that used to keep them. And so we've seen a lot of uh, money put in um, into the into uh, developing primate sanctuaries. We now have two elephant sanctuaries in the United States. And this year, the first marine sanctuary for whales was opened up in Iceland. And in fact, uh, a beluga whale was the first, uh, um, a previously captive beluga whale was the first um, to, um, to be introduced there and, and let, let out of its captivity and, and put into a sanctuary. And we want to see more of that. And so we think by trying to stop this transfer, uh, we'll put more pressure on marine land and others to start utilizing uh, the not only the Iceland um, marine sanctuary, but maybe put some money into opening up others. And and I guess we need marine sanctuaries because the human species across the planet has not agreed uh, in totality, to allow just naturally these these whales to be uh, left alone. Well, you know, it, we always have that gap, right? I mean, as um, it becomes less and less uh, likely that whales, in particular, will be taken from the wild and put into captivity, um, you still have these whales that have long lives that were taken from the wild when they were babies and are going to need a home uh, as we start to say we don't want them to be displayed or live in these 
awful conditions at some of these aquariums around the world. And so we need to find a place that is more expansive, more wildlife for them to live the rest of their lives in. And so returning them just back into the wild is probably going to result in their death because of, you know, they've never been around predators. They've never had to fend for their own food. Uh, it probably would would be uh, uh, impossible for many of them to, to, to live in the wild again. I mean, they were taken from the wild when they were babies for the most part, um, stripped away from their mothers uh, and their pods. And so, but a marine sanctuary gives them space, uh, gives them a lot of freedom, and also allows them to get the care that they need. That yeah, I guess that that makes sense too. It's not just about uh, we humans not agreeing to to leave uh, the whales alone. It's the fact that, as you just mentioned, we we uh, didn't allow them to learn how to live in the wild. Because we domesticated them, basically, when we brought them into aquariums and the like. And now to let them go back out into the wild would be basically, uh, you know, signing a death warrant for them because they wouldn't know how to deal with the predators and, the, and such. That's Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. That's interesting. And, you know, and we still have, though, very opportunistic um, captors like like the some of the aquariums here in in um, the United States that still haven't gotten the message uh, uh, that, uh, that that these animals shouldn't be used for entertainment purposes or for, um, you know, being held in captivity and displayed or or po- poked, and, poked and prodded in tanks for research. Um, and um, a few years ago, there was a proposal to uh, take wild belugas from Russia and bring them to the Georgia Aquarium and that was actually defeated uh, by a lot of organizations, including Friends of Animals, who opposed it. Um, and now we have Mystic trying to get these whales from from um, Marine Land in Canada. And interestingly, they uh, they signed an agreement with the Georgia Aquarium to give the Georgia Aquarium sort of an option on some of them uh, if if Mystic decides that they want to. Um, in their beluga program, but also uh, on any babies that they might be able to uh, breed in captivity uh, by Mystic would go to the Georgia Aquarium. So there's some really, some really, you know, bad actors out there still who don't get the message about this. And um, and so on one hand, we're trying to provide a push and an incentive for Marineland Canada to return their these belugas to a sanctuary. And at the same time, trying to say, you know, we're going to have we need stricter and more robust laws here in the United States because we still have aquariums that don't get it. Well, you know, it's interesting. The the premise you always come into our discussions with is that other animals have a right to live a life of emotional, psychological, physical peace and and um you know to be allowed to to not uh feel stress or pain and a, a lot of folks don't don't understand it i don't think not that they maybe don't care they they just don't even think about it right is that a challenge you face often when you put these arguments out i mean when we look at where the human species is today yeah you know i mean we're dealing with a worldwide 
pandemic. We have in the United States and across the the globe economic strife and political strife. So someone comes out, you know, they're listening to the radio, they're listening to this show, and they hear a gentleman talking about the the well-being of, of whales. Uh, and they're like, what? Jesus, why should I even care about that? The, the human species is, is a mess. How, how would you respond to that? Just I like always going back to that because I think sometimes that happens. People are like, wow, this is not even a serious conversation. Yeah. Well, a few things on that. I mean, I think first, most obviously, is that the perceptions are changing greatly in the last uh, 10 to 15 years because um, we uh, don't know. We no longer just uh, from a perspective of, of science only consider uh, animals to be these biological units that just don't feel anything. I think science is so open to the idea of animal cognition and emotions that um, it's more mainstream than it has ever been. And then you take animals like like whales and dolphins um, and they display this ability to self-identify and communicate and people really uh, uh, see that. And so today it's obviously a different conversation than it was in the past. But still, you're right. I mean, uh, humans um, are so not only caught up in themselves, but caught up in such strife um, that it's hard to then uh, spend any energy um, to tackle or take on this idea that there's these other set of species out there that uh, deserve the same types of uh, consideration and protections that we do. Um, it's hard to, to, to fathom that right now. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's inch by inch. I think people, and maybe, you know, what's going on right now in 2020, um, maybe people are more receptive to it than ever before, because it's a, it's a, um, in some ways, right. It's a lot, it's a lot more hopeful that animals, uh, can, uh, to, to, to be good to animals and what they give back to us than what, being good to other people right now feels <laughs> like get back right uh, and yeah. So, yeah i mean uh who, who knows i i think i i just think that it's it's certainly in my mind like for instance you know i i've done environmental law for as long as we've known each other right yes years uh, years and so back then when we started doing environmental law you know it seemed like everybody wanted to save the environment i mean uh, our government was committed to it. Um, our politicians were committed to it, uh, no matter Republican or Democrat. I mean, there may be differences in there were differences in views um, on how to balance it with like e- the economy and stuff. But it wasn't considered to be like um, something spiteful or distasteful to want to protect our water and our air and our forests. And so that has gotten worse. I mean, right? Yes. yes. Environmental law is like, you know, trying to, uh, uh, you, you know, ch- change, uh, you know, ch- sort of change the minds of people that are just entrenched on disbelief and distrust. It's, it's crazy. But on the other hand, with animals, it's the opposite. I mean, it's a lot easier to do the work I'm doing today than it was 20 years ago, because the idea that animals are 
you know, again, intelligent and have uh, self, you know, autonomy and all this stuff. I, I think people are like, yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. And, and that's and it's worth protecting it. In fact, polls always show uh, the public is way more sympathetic to uh, protecting animals than they are open right now to tackling climate change. I, and I guess, I mean, that's not necessarily why can't you do both right but at least at least they're 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 in a good position on on one issue right um climate change is obviously i'm sure you and i both agree is so so uh, uh prescient and, and so important right now um but you know we you mentioned this earlier as a species are so self-absorbed um and you know though i think as again you mentioned, we look at more and more so at other animals as, as in a way being kinder, right? A little bit more um, sympathetic, uh, more even I would even say this sounds crazy maybe, but they, other animals oftentimes I think have more integrity. Yeah, you know, is that it makes sense to you? Yeah. Oh no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we um, oh, many of us grew up watching uh, documentaries about animals that tried to show their, um, you know, their animal side, their, their brutality side, right? I mean, people wanted to see, you know, the hunters hunt their prey and all that kind of stuff and capture that and, and portray animals as these wild beasts. But uh, that's not their lives for the most part. I mean, yeah, though, their survival is based upon a food chain and, and a web like ours are, right? But when it comes to their, uh, you know, how they treat and interact with one another, both as, you know, like a, a single species or multiple species in a habitat, there's far more cooperation, far more um, respect, I think, for, for others that is demonstrated. Um, because you know they're not they're not uh, trying to achieve an advantage over one another in any way. That's for sure. I think we mentioned about that mountain lion study from last year that came out, right? That everyone wanted to see mountain lions, whether you call them cougars, mountain lions, pumas. Uh, there's a lot of names for them uh, as these uh, you know just sort of solitary feeding machines. Uh, you know, they get together to breed and fight over territory. But besides that, they're just there's no social structure, no cooperation. They just are killing machines that live solitary lives. And um, boy, you know what? We found out last year. That's all a lie. These animals party, <laughs> hang out together. They bring food like potlucks to one another. And it's part of their it's really necessary this social structure for them to live good lives and so you know we're learning so much about animals and their behavior and you know what they don't have is our human quality of greed right and that makes them a lot different uh, they take what they need to take from the from the from the you know food chain and from our from the, the web of life um but not anymore um uh, they're not killing each other with any malice that's for sure well said. Well said. And, and you know, ours. one thing I, about this thing, because, you know, there are people out there who go like climate change. Wow. You know, that's the most important issue um, we need to conquer right now. And I agree. 
But you know what? It doesn't mean that um, uh, the idea of um, animal welfare and animal protection needs to take a back seat because they go hand in hand. In fact, it's just another tool, another argument for us doing better to protect the globe and the environment because it not only is our, our place to live and we need it to survive, but all these other critters too need it to survive. And, you know, I think that for me, saving the, you know, it, it, resolving the climate crisis not only is beneficial to us, but boy, it gives us a chance to look around at everything on this earth that we share it with and say, wow, you know, there's a lot more meaning here for us to absorb uh, now that we can see it as a as sort of a more complex, complete picture. And animals play a huge role in that, right? Yes, right. I, I love the, the perspective you're sharing here and, and the interconnectedness of this all. Michael Harris, Director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, a regular contributor, I'm proud to say, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And before we're done today, you know, this speaks, I think, the next place I'd like us to go. Uh, this speaks to how, how we are preoccupied oftentimes or narrow-minded, we humans. Uh, let's talk a bit about your fight, so to speak, your fights with the uh, regard to the federal duck stamp contest and uh, also uh, the, um, the requirement of a hunting or fishing license to access state wildlife uh, uh, areas and state trust lands in Colorado, two separate uh, yeah. battlefields, so to speak. I'm being very uh, aggressive in my terminology. <laughs> but but uh, explain to us what's going on there. It, it, this stuff seems a little bit extreme to me. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess there's depends on your viewpoint of what ex, which side is extreme, I guess. Um, well, the, 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 the government. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, – we have talked about hunting on this show together many, many times. And usually it's about our work to stop trophy hunting of, you know, charismatic animals like elephants and lions in Africa and mounting them on the wall. And, but, but you also have touched with me, like what's my overall view on hunting, like as a sustainable practice or as a, a tool for feeding yourself. And as you know, I have hinted at me at sort of saying, I don't really think there's a lot of that truly going on in the world anymore, um, especially in the United States. Let's put it that way. In the United States, I don't think there's truly a lot of people that are, you know, um, that that sort of ha have to hunt to sustain um, themselves. I think more of it is a sport, uh, and um, the eating of the meat uh, is sort of uh, secondary to the passion some people have to hunt uh, as a sport or to get out of the house maybe uh, and away from everyone. But in any case, we haven't as a program really taken on um, non, you know, trophy hunting um, um, as, you know, as, a, as sort of, you know, challenging it in court or participating in, in um, administrative fights over it. But that's changing now because I think naturally, and this is, there's no doubt about this, naturally hunting is just not uh, popular and is not really a sustainable um, method, for instance, of um, 
producing money for state conservation efforts any longer. Uh, less than 5% of Americans hunt, while far, far greater percentages actually find it to be repulsive and that the killing of an animal is just doesn't make any sense today. Mostly hunting is just out of style because there's so much for us to do um, that isn't involving, uh, you know, shooting an animal um, as a recreational activity. Um, so, unfortunately, and this is these two cases that you you are talking about come at it from different sides. On the federal government side, what we have seen under the Trump administration is a persistent effort to romanticize hunting and require every agency involved in wildlife conservation and public lands to do its part to promote it. And it has been uh, perverse. Um, we have seen just um, whether it is uh, requirements that hunting take precedent within wildlife refuges or within um, um, public lands, uh, whether it's been getting rid of councils that uh, try to protect animals from illegal wildlife trafficking and instead replace them with councils on how to promote hunting. Um, so it's just been an onslaught of folks who are trying to keep themselves and uh, these guys, I'm talking about groups like the Safari Club and and other pro hunting organizations to keep themselves relevant in an administration that actually allows them to be relevant. But this idea, so the, the suit we're bringing here is, this is like gone to extreme, as you said, it's, it's extreme. The, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced that it was going to require all artwork put on what are called duck stamps. And duck stamps have been sold in this country for more than 50 years. And they are, they are required if you are going to uh, hunt on federal land, but they are also just a tool for funding conservation. And millions of Americans who never hunt purchase duck stamps because they know the $25 goes to protect wildlife, particularly waterfowl, and keep, uh, keep places like National Refuge System opened up. Uh, and every year, the Fish Wildlife Service sponsors uh, an art contest. And I am told that if you are a wildlife artist, particularly a duck artist, people who specialize in painting uh, portraits with ducks in them, that this is like, you know, this is like the end all to win this, mm -hmm. right? And have your artwork on there. I mean, this is like, you've made it, right? You've, you've reached the pinnacle of your profession. Um, and some of these stamps are beautiful. I mean, as we know, ducks uh, come in all kinds of beautiful uh, varieties. Well, anyways, Fish and Wildlife Service has said that you're, you won't be able to enter the contest unless your stamp, your portrait, uh, portrays hunting <laughs> in there. And that could be anything from, you know, having a – like I think the guy who won this year actually had a duck call, you know, one of the, the little horns that you use to attract them. And uh, actually, it got a lot of criticism because he had it laying in the reeds, like it was lost or discarded. So someone also said, "Well, you're leaving this trash in the, in the you know, the refuge." But, but that was his attempt to be subtle about it. 
Um, but anyways, it's just ridiculous. And we believe that not only is it has no rational connection to the program, it's actually harmful to the program. People, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people said they would not purchase them anymore. Hundreds of artists said they wouldn't participate anymore. So it just really makes a mockery of the program and, and probably is going to hurt conservation. And we also believe that it infringes on artists' First Amendment rights of freedom of expression, uh, that it requires them to put into their art something that they may not actually feel, you know, represents them. Um, we do know that for 2021, uh, the number of artists uh, has dropped from uh, that want to participate and put in applications from around 180-ish last year to around 140 this year. Um, and that doesn't represent, of course, people who, you know, are first timers. And so it may be even more uh, of the folks who participated past years aren't going to do it. Just it's just ridiculousness, CW. I mean, it is no, it no is. one needs to boast up or romanticize. I feel like we're living, uh, you know, uh, in 1910 and Ernest Hemingway is, you know, going to pop out of the bushes and, you know, <laughs> tell us a story or something. I mean, it's just, it's just antiquated. And um, I love Hemingway's writing, but that was romantic 100 years ago. It's not romantic today. No, we've hopefully, we like to think we evolved, right? Um, yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I'm really happy that you're fighting this fight because you're right. It's also a First Amendment right. Uh, it's, it, it's federal dollars. It shouldn't be so narrowly focused. I, thank you. Thank you for doing this, you and Friends of Animals. Now, the, the last bit, we're almost out of time here. Uh, in Colorado, it also seems like uh, citizens' rights are being sort of uh, squashed yeah. Well, so if we Colorado and some of the states, it, it's less of this uh, intentional attempt to salvage a dying sport. It's more of an attempt to save their budgets. And a lot of Western conservation efforts uh, were built upon the premise that you can pay for it by hunting dollars. And in the 1940s and 50s and before that, obviously, hunting was a very, very uh, not just it wasn't a sport, it was a necessary activity as well in the West. And so you could fund um, public lands conservation with hunting licenses. That's just not the case anymore with less than 5% of people uh, wanting to hunt. And so we are urging, you know, Colorado and other states to take a more expansive approach at funding public lands, for instance, uh, taxes on outdoor activities and outdoor retail and so forth that can be used um, and to actually let hunting go, let it die, let it, let it go the route it's already heading. But that's really hard for some of these folks to do. And it's, that's what's going on in Colorado. So instead of saying, Hey, we're going to take a whole new approach. What Colorado is trying to do is to make non hunters that use state lands. So birders, hikers, recreationists, photographers, purchase hunting license to go on those lands. You have to carry a hunting license. So you imagine what would happen if I wanted to go out on one of our state lands and I went down and purchased a hunting license and then I was in a staff meeting at Friends of Animals and my wallet fell open and <laughs> hunting license spilled out. So, you know, for me, it's a infringement on my First Amendment rights as well to make me purchase something like that. But we're, we're challenging that requirement. And actually the state has they didn't realize how controversial it was. And they've announced that they were going to 
um, get rid of that rule and that they're going to come up with a new plan uh, by April uh, 30th, 2021. Excellent. So you kind of won that one. I think so. I think we're going to win that one. Excellent. Michael Harris, again, it's always a joy talking with you. I love your perspective, and I love to hear about the work you're doing. Um, And uh, take care of yourself, you, your family, your friends. And hopefully next time we we talk, we'll have uh, some some good news regarding politics and the like. Oh, yes. Thank you, EW. Uh, It was a real pleasure, and uh, have a fantastic day. You too. Bye. Bye. The wind is in from Africa Last night I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie But it's really not my home My fingernails are filthy I've got beach tar on my feet And I miss my clean white linen And my fancy French cologne Oh, Carrie, get out your cane A bottle of wine And we'll laugh and toast And nothing and smash our Empty glasses down Let's have a round for these Freaks and these soldiers A round for these friends of mine Let's have another round For the bright red devil who Keeps me in this tourist town Come on Carrie Get out your cake I knew him on and off for many years. We had a very strange relationship. He was, uh, I never belonged to his clan. 
because I made fun of him. And nobody ever made fun of Hemingway. Mm. But I did. And he took it, but he didn't like me to do it in front of the, the club. We met in a projection of a movie which he had made and which he wanted me to narrate. And uh, he had written the commentary. This is many years ago. Mm. And uh, we hadn't seen each other. This is a dark projection room. And I was reading the text. And I said, is it really necessary to say this? Do you think wouldn't it be better to just see the picture? And things like that. And then I heard this growl from the darkness, you know? Some damn faggot who runs an art theater trying to tell me how to write narration and so on. So I began to camp it up. I thought, if that's what I'm dealing with, I said, oh, Mr. Hemingway, you think because you're so big and strong and have hair on your chest that you've got a bully me, you see? So this great figure stood up and swung at me. So I swung at him. Now you have the picture of the Spanish Civil War being projected on a screen and these two heavy figures swinging away at each other and missing most of the time. <laughs> the lights came up and we looked at each other and burst into laughter and became great friends. Not a friendship that was renewed every year, but over many years at different times. Yes. And I saw him in the last year in which he was still entirely in control of himself, again, quite, quite a lot. But we never discussed bullfighting because we, uh, except on the subject of Ordonez, we disagreed profoundly on too many points. And he thought he invented it, you know. Yes. He yes. really did think he yes. invented it. Yes. He really, of course, maybe he did. His book, of course, is still it's a, a magnificent And it's a superb book. He's a, yeah. he's a great, great, great artist. I, I, mm. I, 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 my, my admiration for... I was enormously fond of him as a man, too, because the thing you never get from his books was his humor. Yes. There's hardly a word of humor in a Hemingway book because he's so tense and solemn and dedicated to what is true and good and all that. Mm. But when he relaxed, he was riotously funny. Mm. And that was the level that I loved about him. And I, uh, I, I, I enjoyed being with him. I used to go out and keep him company when he went duck shooting in Venice in the, uh, in the in the autumns. I have many strange memories of him like that. And yeah. I was enormously fond of him. But as an artist, I think that the, it's really, <clears throat> there are very few important writers, with the exception of Novikov, who uh, are, have not been influenced to some degree by him. I think it's impossible to write the same and yet, as we did before he wrote. And yet, do you not sense now that he's become, over the past 10 years, an old-fashioned sort of figure? He's come back again, I think. Yeah. My hunch is, I don't know in England, of course, because these things <coughs> vary in different countries. In America, he was uh, in total eclipse for the last 10 years, but he's, uh, the sun is rising again, mm. uh, critically for him, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. He's been dead long enough. I, I think it's mainly true, isn't it, that, that uh, writers do go into uh, total eclipse right after their death. Yes. I wonder why that is, but it seems to be true. He was ultimately, of course, a tragic figure, wasn't he? I mean, in that his end was com complete counterpoint to all that he'd stood for and written about. He was sick, he was sick. But he did talk about suicide, you know. His father uh, uh, killed himself with a gun in the same way. Yes. And he talked to me about it several times. Really? In a sort of obsessive way. Yes. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a sick man. He wasn't merely a... He was, uh, he was not well mentally, you know. Yes. He's not to be judged as himself. In other words, he didn't, the Hemingway we are talking about did not choose his death. 
Yes. He might have, but he wasn't that man. Yes. Now is the time. Now is the time for all good men to get together with one another. Find out their problems and iron out their quarrels and try to live as brothers. And try to find peace within without stepping on one another. And do respect of the women of the world. Just remember we all had mothers. Make this land a better land in the world in which we live. And help each man be a better man with the kindness that you give. And I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know done well we can work it out. Oh, yes, we can. I know we can. If we try Oh yes we can and no we can't can Yes we can great gosh almighty Yes we can and no we can't can Take care of the children The children of the world They're our strongest hope for the future The little bit of boys and girls And make this land a better land better man with the kindness that you give and i know we can make it i know that we can i know done well we can work it out Yes, we can, I know we can, can Yes, we can, can, why can't we If we want it, 
Memory. Pancakes with maple syrup. Wake and bake days. Conjure an otherwise disoriented spirit. As a young man looks out to witness a moment in a mountain lake enclave township, profound enough to last in recollection of memory three and one-half decades ahead. A waking dreamscape into today as I step out of bed. Episode 393 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Michael Harris and Friends of Animals. 
I'd like to thank Orson Welles and Michael Parkinson and Ernest Hemingway and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Sly and the Family Stone, The Wood Brothers, Joni Mitchell, Alan Toussaint, Kat Edmondson, and of course, Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care.